two weeks ago, we worked backwards in the Bible and discussed Joseph. We talked about how he made mention of the Exodus and gave instructions concerning his bones. Today, let's move forward to the time of the Exodus and shortly thereafter. Let's talk about rules for kings. Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, a fortnightly podcast that strives to reveal beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. From a burning bush, God called Moses to lead the people of Israel out from the land of Egypt. Their destination was Canaan the land that God had long ago promised to his servant Abraham. So it came to pass that four or five hundred years after God's promise to Abraham, Moses and the family of Israel, which had grown large enough to be considered a nation, left Egypt and found themselves wandering through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. During that period of wandering, God, through Moses, gave the people the Torah. Torah is a Hebrew word that roughly translates to instruction or teaching, as the Torah was indeed God's instruction to the nation of Israel about how to conduct itself in a manner that is pleasing to God and sets Israel apart from the other nations, making it an example and blessing to the rest of the world. The last section of the Torah is called Devarim, Deuteronomy in English. And partway through that section is where we find, as I like to call them, the rules for kings. Beginning at chapter 17, verse 14, the brief set of instructions in its entirety reads, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and settle in it, should you say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. From among your brothers you shall set a king over you. You may not place a foreigner over you who is not a brother person to you. Furthermore, the king shall not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, You shall never return that way again and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart be turned aside. And excess silver or gold he shall not acquire for himself. But it shall be that when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this instruction, approved by the Levitical priests. It is to remain beside him, and he is to read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to have all for the Lord his God, to be careful concerning all the words of this instruction and these laws, and to observe them, that his heart not be raised above his brothers, and that he not turn aside from what is commanded, either to the right or to the left, in order that he may prolong his days over his kingdom, he and his sons, 
in the midst of Israel. When it comes to the instructions just enumerated, we might ask ourselves, so what of it? What's the importance of this obscure passage? To appreciate the rules for kings, we must begin by turning to Moses. When God called him as the champion and paladin of the Israelites, Moses became not only their liberator, but also their leader. As much as it is clear, the original intention was for Moses to lead the people into the promised land of Canaan and establish them there. However, for reasons that are beyond the scope of this episode, Moses died before entering the promised land. Thus, plan A gave way to plan B, and the torch of leadership passed from Moses to his friend and assistant of forty-odd years, Joshua. Like Moses, Joshua was a strong central leader who was over the twelve tribes and all of Israel. Joshua led the nation into the promised land of Canaan and oversaw their conquest of it. By the time that Joshua's death was at hand, much of the promised land had been successfully reappropriated from its former inhabitants and distributed among the twelve tribes of Israel. So, there was no longer a need for single central leadership like his or that of Moses before him. Therefore, following the death of Joshua, the governance of Israel transitioned into something resembling a confederacy, wherein each tribe was relatively autonomous and led by its own most senior male, in patriarchal fashion. Loosely uniting the tribes were priests, prophets, and judges, in addition to their common morris and religion. Now, the judges were supposed to be leaders who would mediate between the tribal authorities and serve God. Problems arose when, by and large, they turned out to be power-hungry warmongers. Their tales are collected in the Book of Judges, but the essence of it is that, after a while, each new judge ended up being worse than his predecessor. And the priests, too, fell short of their responsibilities. The leadership of Israel worsened and worsened until, in the days of the prophet Samuel, the people asked for a king. Samuel consulted God about the nation's request for a monarch, and the Lord did grant them a king in accordance with their petition, but only after urging the people to seriously consider what they were asking for, as kings, then as now, were notorious for harsh oppression of their subjects. Yes, yes, the people said, give us a king. So it was that Samuel anointed Saul, the first king of Israel. The succession went King Saul, King David, King Solomon, then civil war, and the country divided itself into two kingdoms, each of which had its own line of kings. And I will leave it by saying that some kings were good, most were bad, and it followed that way for quite some time. For the nation of Israel, things were going well through the time of Joshua, albeit 
not exactly as intended, but not too far off either. The prospective dissipation of central authority and concomitant sovereignty that each tribe would gain were good, positive things. And if there ever arose for a tribe a situation beyond its management, then they were to turn to the ultimate sovereign, God, whose will could be communicated to the people through the priests. In the Almighty's plan for Israel, there was no need for a human king. Each patriarch was to be his own palatine, but to turn to God when a more authoritative ruler was needed. That ruler, of course, was the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no need for a king, because God would be their king. They would not need an earthly monarch like the other nations, because they were to have a heavenly one. But as we know already, that plan did not come to pass, and the people were compelled to ask for a king because their leaders had stopped listening to God. The priests, patriarchs, and judges were, largely, doing things in accordance with their own wills, and they were taking the country toward ruin. Yet, God is a God who prepares for our failures, and thus had already prepared a contingency for the Israelites. Way back when, during the days when Moses was still in charge, as the Torah was set forth, God gave instructions about how possible future kings were to conduct themselves and stay true to the divine and their callings. Is God not great who casts safety nets all around us for when we stand poised to unintentionally bring about our own destruction? It reminds me of when God took a fish and grew it to be the size of a ship, for just in case Jonah ran away, sailed across the Mediterranean, and got himself thrown overboard. Did God want Jonah to disobey and run? No, but God knew the character of Jonah well enough to plan for the possible failure, and thus prepared for that occasion well in advance. And for the people of Israel, did God intend for them to have an earthly king? No, but God knew his people well enough to posit that they might one day insist on having one. So God prepared, and God gave Moses the rules for kings. It is as if God said, I don't want you to have a king, and you shouldn't want one either. You are different from other nations because you have me to lead you. Nevertheless, I have a feeling that one day you will insist on a king. So when that day comes, I have already laid out a standard for them that, in keeping those precepts, those earthly kings might stay grounded and rule you well. So what exactly were God's rules, and are they worthwhile? Well, like all of God's instruction, the rules for kings are exceedingly pragmatic. First, make sure that the person chosen as king is a son of Israel, a full-fledged member of the nation who understands its unique place and has a stake in it. Therefore, don't appoint a foreigner whose ways are different than yours. Next, the king shall not be overly concerned with his personal wealth. He shall not spend his days acquiring horses, and he shall certainly not seek out the fine horses of Egypt and 
in pursuit of those creatures, return the people to the land of their oppression. The Lord has said, Never again shall you return that way. Indeed, the king shall refrain from excessively accumulating any fine things, not only horses, but refrain from gold, silver, and all manner of finery, and even wives. These precepts make good sense. A leader overly concerned with personal wealth stands at the door of corruption. But that is sound advice for any occupant of a powerful office. The rules for kings continue and set forth uniquely Israelite tenets meant to keep the king virtuous and chasing after God's own heart. He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this instruction, approved by the Levitical priests. It is to remain beside him, and he is to read in it all the days of his life. But this is more than simply studying God's word. First, the king is to write out the Torah, which is God's instruction for the people. Imagine writing out part of the Bible, not just to have a copy, but because when you write something out, copy it word for word by hand, you are forced to slow down and pay attention. When handwriting something, you realize so many nuances that were missed when going through it at eye speed. So, in writing out the instruction for himself, the king would be thoroughly familiarizing himself with God's law. Furthermore, he must then have that copy of the Torah approved by the Levitical priests. The text implies that the priest would assess not only the content itself, as in, did the king include everything and not skip any parts, but also assess the manner in which it was performed. Did the king do a perfunctory job with misspelled words and sloppy characters? Because if the king were to hand the priests an underwhelming cursory work for approval, Presumably, their response would be, do it over. Start again from page one. For God's instruction is not to be taken lightly. The king's entire being must be put towards it, heart, soul, and strength. And when, finally, the king has copied out the Torah and had it approved by the Levitical priests, the rules for kings state that he shall keep it with him and study it all the days of his life. It is not enough to read through once, but each and every day, God's instruction must be studied and reflected upon. Thus it is that if a king does these things, then he will be a worthy monarch. is the trouble with kings. Why did that system not work for the Israelites? Because, after all, since the rules for kings are God's own instruction, aren't they perfect? So why then did the kings of Israel fail miserably? And indeed, why did the people even get to the point of feeling the need for kings? There is a fundamental flaw, a bug in the system. And it's not with the Torah per se. The instructions, God's rules, are good. But they were given to people to be obeyed, and obeyed they were not. 
Take Moses as an example. Even the great leader he was. He disobeyed God and let his own insecurities get between the command and the execution of it. Therefore, for the good of the people, God removed Moses from leadership and appointed Joshua in his place. Consider also King David. He was the quintessential king of Israel and described as a man after God's own heart. But even he too disobeyed God and succumbed to the temptations of the world. And again, the same thing happened when God placed authority not in one man, but in many, as in the time of the judges, when God's rule was ignored, just as it was in the time of kings. So the question becomes, why does God allow this to happen? Why let Moses take the reins? Why let the judges take control of the land? Why give rules for kings, knowing full well that no king would ever follow them? In short, why does God design a system almost guaranteed to fail? As we are fond of doing here on Stories of Symmetry, let's go backwards in the Bible, because the trouble with kings is the same as the trouble with gardens, which we discussed in the episode of that name. In the beginning, God gave mankind a choice, to follow God's ways or to follow our own. Originally, Adam and Eve chose their own way. Since then, each and every of their progeny has done likewise, even to us today. You see, God lovingly gives people a choice, yet, as a species, we seem incapable of not trying our own way first. We just have to see what it's like and if it's better. The thing of the matter, though, is that we intuitively know that our way is not as good as God's. Nevertheless, we still feel the need to try. It is for reasons like this that the sons of Jacob stayed in Egypt too long. As it was, Egypt was meant to be a temporary solution during a time of famine. The Israelites were never meant to remain there for centuries. Yet even as food returned to their homeland, the promised land of Canaan, the Israelites did not return. Egypt seemed pretty good, really good in fact, so why bother to return to the land that God had specially chosen? When the people cried to God and asked to restore their broken relationship, God blessed them with the Torah, the set of instructions outlining what the nation's conduct should be and how to become worthy of God's own blessing. And yet, the people did not abide by it. The Lord, the Holy One, offered to be the King of Israel. And yet, the Israelites asked for a person instead. Consider it like this. On the first page of the Bible, God and mankind are in community together. On the second page, that relationship falls apart. And on the last page, God and men are in community once again. Everything in the middle is about restoring the relationship, and much of that narrative consists of mankind trying different methods, realizing they don't work, and then trying others, repeating the process. God, what if we offer sacrifices to you to show our affection and remorse? Go for it. God, 
We need rules, clear instructions, because we don't know if what we're doing is too much, too little, or what. Okay, here is the Torah, comprehensive instructions and guidance about what I want and how to know that you are on good terms with me. God, that's not working. There's just too much there. Put the priests and judges in charge of us, and they will lead us. Done. God, priests and judges sound well and good, but there's too many. We need a central leader to take control. Give us a king, like all the other nations have. Are you sure? That sounds like it will lead to trouble and misery. Yes, we want a king. Very well. Here you go. God, these kings aren't working out. After all, they are human and fallible, and too much power goes to the head, even the head of a great man. Send us a king that is chosen by you, hand-picked and infallible, one who is worthy to lead us and who will restore us in your eyes. God, send us your own anointed king. Send us a messiah. Are you sure? Yes. We need you, Lord, for we have tried everything else. You have let us try our own way. You have made all the concessions for us. We have exhausted every other method. But now, O sovereign God, we are convinced that your way is the only way. Send us a Messiah. So God did. God sent a Messiah. But even then, the people didn't like him because his goals were God's and not man's. The Messiah sought to establish a heavenly kingdom rather than a political one. The Messiah defeated the real enemy, sin and death, and not the superficial enemy, Rome. The story of the Bible is about God letting people try and try and try until they convince themselves that they need God. When you read the Bible, you see this happening on the scale of humanity, played out over millennia. But God also lets us play out the same thing, small scale, in our own lives. God lets us choose our own ways, lets us try whatever we think will work best, until we come around to accept the Messiah sent for our benefit. The Lord will even let bad things happen in our lives so that we can see the error of our ways. And when we turn and follow the Messiah, God will still let bad things happen so that our faith can be tested and strengthened, and to weaken those things on which we depend that are not God. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets, for I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. How can we understand what it means to fulfill the Torah if we do not first understand its purpose? The Torah, the instruction, was meant to restore the relationship between God and mankind. But God knew that it wouldn't work. Yes, God gave the Torah to Moses, even knowing that it would not suffice. It depended too much on people. Yet, God gave it anyway because... The character of humankind is that we must try our own way first 
before accepting something better. There is a midrash that says that if every Jew were to faithfully observe two Sabbaths in a row, the Messiah would come. The teaching says that a first Sabbath was obeyed perfectly, but on the second, a single Jew disobeyed. On that day, the Satan smiled while Elijah wept. The fact of the matter is that people do not obey God well. But don't take my word for it. Consider the example that the Bible gives us in the story of Israel. So what does God do? Well, God effectively said, When you are done trying, let me know, and I will do it for you. But why doesn't God start there? Because if God did start there, then we would question whether or not we really needed God to step in and intervene. But we get to the point where we are convinced of the need for divine intervention, and then Jesus enters. Not to abolish the Torah, but to fulfill it, to complete what it began, the restoration of God and mankind. Thus it is that Jesus, the Messiah, the one who God anointed and placed over us, was, all along, the end goal and fulfillment of the Torah, and all God's instruction throughout the ages. And he was the only one who was truly able to follow the rules for kings. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry. We hope that you had a great time and that you learned something and that you found beauty and purpose in today's message. If you did, then don't hesitate to share this podcast with the people in your life, such as, by far, the best way that you can help Stories of Symmetry grow and reach more people. And of course, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review if you haven't done so already. The next episode will be out in two weeks. See you then. Go with God. Go in peace.